the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to a brand new series of the History Show. On this week's programme, the assassination of Henry Wilson. So there's this, this profound shock about it. They're spoiling for vengeance as a result of this and they want to find somebody to blame. So this is where it becomes particularly hairy from an Irish point of view that they blame the anti-treaty rebels in the four courts. Ronan McGreevy on the killing that sparked the Irish Civil War. Also, flat earth fever in 19th century aflone. Part of his goal and his mission was to uncover the 2,000 plus years of fallacy and tell people the real truth. It's the Irish Midlands, it's flat. He might have felt that there was a, <laughs> the audience was likely to be uh, amenable to his argument. Ian Kennelly on the prophet known as Parallax, who spread the word of a flat earth to the equally flat Midlands of Ireland. But we begin this evening in West Cork, where the centenary of a significant offshore adventure is being celebrated. The first Irish circumnavigation of the world was by Limerick man Conor O'Brien, who set off in 1923 aboard his yacht Searsha. Searsha sailed into the history books as the first boat to carry the tricolour around the world. Now at Hegarty's Boatyard near Baltimore, a full-scale replica of Searsha is under construction, as history is once again being made, this time out of timber. Flora McCarthy hopped on board for us. Top one. OK, go for it. Hegarty's Boatyard stands at a sweep on the beautiful River Island, training ground of Olympic rowers halfway between Skibbereen and Baltimore. It's Ireland's last surviving traditional wooden boatyard and now in the third generation of the Hegarty family. Paddy, whose grandfather set up the yard in 1948, shows me around. Anything to do with boats really is complete madness, if you ask me, but sure. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Walking past the huge skeletons of old trawlers and some high-tech steel vessels being worked on too, we come to the small quayside and there, the unmistakable lines of the beautiful Saoirse tied up along the pontoon. The sails came from a guy, even though I hop on board with Liam Hagerty, who, with his brother John and shipwright Fachna O'Sullivan, took on the commission four years ago to build an authentic replica of Saoirse, in which Conor O'Brien set sail in 1923. His original 42-foot catch had been built in nearby Baltimore. There was never any drawings, per se, really, of, apart from O'Brien's sketches of the board. And Tom Wynion, the builder, put his own stamp on it as well. There was a half model available as well. And we compared one against the other. And you still use the handsaw, the, the, the hammer and chisel and the heads. Uh, the only difference is that... Uh, you have power planes and, and battery drills and all sorts of things, which you still don't have the hand tools to put it together. As you're working away, does it make you think about Conor O'Brien and what he did taking this small boat around the world? Well, that was a major achievement, but like I'd always think of the people that built it. You know, Tom Wynion was the man, the foreman in charge of the project, and he had his stamp on it, uh, because I often heard my father saying that he, he was a pure genius. Conor O'Brien, born in 1880, had qualified as an architect, but as his grand-nephew Dermot O'Brien explained, it was his passion for adventure which led him to sail to New Zealand to go mountaineering. At the time, he did take a ship down to... He took a steamship or something down to the Antarctic and back again while he was in New Zealand. Then he sailed around um, the Cape Horn in extraordinarily benign conditions. He was extremely lucky 
And he sort of said, what was all the fuss about, you know? Earlier adventures had seen Conor O'Brien and his sister Margaret sail a gun-running mission to the North Sea aboard his yacht Kelpie. It was July 1914 when they made their rendezvous with a German gunboat and Erskine Childers in his more famous boat, Asgard. The Asgard became famous because he landed everything in public view in broad daylight in Hove, but um, Connor had made some alternative arrangement to land his cargo on the coast of Wicklow, possibly somewhere near Arklow. His desire would have been to have home rule and a united Ireland. He would not have seen the English or British as an enemy at all. According to Dermot, Connor's motivation would have been home rule for Ireland and he was following in the footsteps of his grandfather, the 19th century nationalist MP William Smith O'Brien, leader of the Young Ireland movement. Kind of following on the um, tradition set up by William Smith O'Brien who started a very, very minor rebellion back in 1848 for which he got transported to Van Diemen's Land, which became um, Tasmania. Back at Hagerty's boatyard, work continues to get Searcher's shipshape for a launch date in May. Some electrical work and fitting out the galley have yet to be finished. Watching everything from behind his camera is documentary photographer Kevin O'Farrell, whose book on Searcher will be launched at the same time. I think it's incredibly important. Liam's very... Modest in a sense, because it is the last traditional wooden boatyard in Ireland that is actually building large wooden boats. Kevin had also documented the reconstruction here of another Conor O'Brien boat, A.K. Island, a wreck brought home to West Cork after 70 years transporting sheep around the Falkland Islands. It's our heritage. It's the maritime heritage that Hegarty's brings forth. These stories are all part of that and it needs to be celebrated. There are lots of small, very small-scale, one or two people, boat builders working around around the country. But as a, as a centre, Hegarty's is just the top. It's the last remaining doing what they do. And it's the centre of excellence. Downriver at Baltimore, where the island meets the sea, Dermot Kennedy, who's been teaching sailing here for decades, says Conor O'Brien's achievements and the stories of his boats are in danger of being lost. I think if Conor O'Brien had been... An Englishman, a Frenchman, and an American or a German, I think everybody would know about him. But I think that we have a big gap in our history that we forget about anything about the sea. In fact, I would go so far as to say, do any of our politicians or any of our leaders, do they realise that we're living on an island? The story of Conor O'Brien, it should be on the curriculum in the history books in the schools in Ireland. Dermot and all those who followed the story of Conor O'Brien hope the Searsha will find a new, permanent home in Baltimore. That should be like a flagship, and it down, kept down in West Cork here, and uh, it'll do little cruises and travel around the coast, and young people and elder people can see the boat out there and see this is the boat that was the first boat to carry the Irish flag around the world. Flora McCarthy was reporting there from Hegarty's Boatyard in West Cork and you'll have an opportunity to see both Searsha and Eileen as the two boats will sail side by side for the first time since 1927 at this year's Wooden Boat Festival in Baltimore over the last weekend in May. 
At half past two in the afternoon on the 22nd of June 1922, Henry Wilson was returning to his stately home in central London. The British Army Field Marshal turned MP had an address at 36 Eaton Place in Belgravia. Then, as now, this was the most expensive and exclusive part of the City of London. It was the place where people like Wilson lived, close to the centre of political power in Westminster. Waiting for him outside his house that day were two armed IRA men, Reginald Dunn and Joseph O'Sullivan, there to carry out one of the most significant political assassinations ever committed on British soil. According to my guest this evening, this was the Sarajevo moment for Irish history. Much like the assassination of Franz Ferdinand eight years earlier, the death of Wilson would have far-reaching consequences for this country. I'm joined now by Rona McGreevy, journalist with the Irish Times and the author of the recently published book Great Hatred, The Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson MP. Rona, you're very welcome back. Thank to you the very much, Miles. Um, now, the day that Wilson was uh, was killed, a uh, very interesting day. We will talk about that because of what he had been doing beforehand. Yeah. But his relationship with Ireland is very, very interesting. And one of the things that uh, amazed me about the book was to read that here was somebody who was born, I'd say, probably a few miles from one of the great soldiers of the Irish War of Independence, Sean McKeown. That's right. Uh, Henry Wilson was an Irishman. Uh, He was self-consciously Irish, actually. Uh, he was an Irish imperialist and Irish unionist at a time when he wouldn't have seen any contradiction in in that in that identity. Ah, uh, yes, he he's from Curry Grand, County Longford, which is as rural Ireland, Southern Ireland as you can get. Uh, he's born in the same parish as uh, Sean McKeown, the uh, a generation of beforehand. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, but yeah. So, so yeah, he he is born right in the middle, really, of of nationalist Ireland, and he is this sort of. The Wilson family had this kind of unionist sort of readout in the middle of of, of Southern Ireland, which is a very interesting uh, part of his upbringing. Um, British educated, public school education? Yeah, he would have had, he was privately educated at home by a French tutor, which was really, really important for his career development later because he becomes the chief liaison between the British and French armies during the First World War and he's fluent in French and that's a big help. But he goes to Marlborough College, which is sort of typical of Anglo-Irish of that class. He comes back to Ireland and he does the exams for Sandhurst and he fails them repeatedly <laughs> and he basically gets into the militia, to, to the Longford militia and to the Royal Irish Regiment, into the British Army and then he uh, embarks upon a very successful career as, as, a, as a, a British Army officer. How does he rise through the ranks for somebody who, as you say, failed uh, serially to get into Sandhurst? But by the time the First World War comes around, he is very, very senior and uh, ultimately becomes a field marshal. I mean, his biographer, uh, Charles Colwell, says, you know, that he had a he had a very fertile original mind, but which wasn't really uh, conducive to studying or to to writing about what are the orthodoxies in, in in military thinking at the time. He's a very original thinker. He's also a self-conscious social climber. Um, he befriends Earl Roberts in South Africa during the Boer War. Um, Roberts sort of almost like adopts him as, as a son of his own because Roberts loses his son in the Boer War. And by the 1910, uh, he's, he's director of military operations uh, for the British Army. 
in that sense, uh, his his most notable contribution to the start of the war is that he is charged with having the uh, British uh, expeditionary force ready for war on the continent of Europe, which, you know, he is talking, you know, Wilson is talking from that time period. We really, really, really have to prepare for this. Yeah. The but British, he sees the threat from Germany. Yeah, he it? sees the threat from Germany at that stage, whereas the British, you know, government didn't want to even contemplate such an eventuality. But he's 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 reconnoitring the, the, the whole territory of, of northern France and Belgium, even in the years running up to the war. Where would a British expeditionary force deploy in the event of a German invasion and as it turns out you know he is bang on the money when it comes to that and he's a man very much for the logistics and we may you know we we may not think of logistics as being particularly important but as we can see with Russia in Ukraine vitally important absolutely and and this is this is you know he was a talented soldier there's no doubt about it he knew exactly how many ships were going to be needed to transport the British expeditionary force he knew the timetables of the trains that were going to take them from the port of Le Havre to uh, Amiens and then on to the various different places. In fact, he had already established that the British army would deploy on the left flank of the French 5th Army. And this is exactly what happened uh, at the time. So, you know, the, the British army, when it is when it is put into the field in 1914, is a small army, but it's very well equipped, it's very well trained, and it does have uh, an impact disproportionate to its size and so uh, in many ways Wilson is credited and can take credit for having the British Expeditionary Force ready for for war in 1914. And in terms of how he is viewed by politicians, by people like Lloyd George for example, he's not associated with the incredible losses, the the kind of the meat grinder. He's not a, a Douglas Haig for example. No he's not and this is what's very interesting about Wilson. Wilson has very little he does at one stage command a corps in the First World War, but it's only for a short period of time. Whereas basically when, when Lloyd George takes over as British Prime Minister in December 1916, he is sickened to the core of his being about the slaughter that's gone on after the Somme, etc. And of course, after Passchendaele in 1917. And he actually says to Wilson, you know, you've got to get me out of this pickle here. You've really got to come up with a, an alternative strategy for me. So, yes, he's not tainted with, with basically service in the field in the same way that the likes of Haig and Robertson and all these generals are. So Lloyd George puts great faith in his, his advice to him. He's quite a character. I mean, if you are a nationalist, you tend to think yeah. of him uh, or, uh, yeah. in a stereotypical yeah. terms. But he was actually, he was quite personable. He could be quite personable. Absolutely. I mean, people who knew him, he was he, he was a big man. He was six foot four. Did he, he use that? Did he take yeah, advantage of Yeah, I think he did, that? yeah. And he was he was quite striking looking in the sense that he was... He wasn't a very handsome man. He was quite ugly, actually, and he had he had a big scar over his left eye. But everybody who knew him always talked about his big personality. And even I came across some video footage there of him talking to some generals in 1919. And you can see that he had this really vibrant personality. Some people talked about him as one of the best communicators they ever knew, that everywhere he went, he was a, he would fill a room with his presence, both physically and and his personality, you know. No, he was a, he was Irish. He made yeah. no secret of the fact that he was Irish. Yeah. He was a Southern Unionist. He was proud of being a Southern Unionist. But you describe you say his country was the British Empire. He wasn't that fond of the English. No, he wasn't. He said that the English are never in earnest about anything, and that uh, he he felt that the English didn't really understand the depth, didn't really understand unionism, 
didn't understand the desire for unionist tradition to be part of the United Kingdom. But also he felt that um, he when I, I said this country was the British Empire, I mean, he identified with the British Empire more than anything else. And it's hard to think of the British Empire as a country, but he would have thought about it at, at that stage as 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 he, he considered, for instance, the likes of India and Egypt to belong. Mm. I mean, he would use the term, he, they would belong to Britain. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, even at that stage, he was a sort of, uh, he was an what I call an institutionalised imperialist. He really believed that the British Empire was a force for good in the world and that um, its enemies were the enemies of Britain. And that's how he lived his life. Now, after the passage of the Government of Ireland Act, when Stormont is established and yeah. a, a, a Southern Parliament is yeah. established, which never exists uh, essentially, he becomes a Unionist MP, but he's a lot more than that. I mean, he is essentially a military advisor to people like James Craig, yeah. for example, to the Unionist government. Well, yes. So in, in 1918, he became the chief of the Imperial General Staff, which was the highest rank in the British Army. So he's the top of the tree. He's also the British mili- he's the military advisor to the cabinet, the British cabinet at that stage. So he's one of the men that wins the war as far as many people are concerned. But in 1922, his four years are up as SIGs. And at that stage, he has become completely estranged from the British government because of its policy or what he sees as appeasement of the sort of murder gang, as he calls Sinn Féin and the IRA, whereas Lloyd George, the British government, realises, you know, that they're not just taking on the IRA, they're actually taking on the nationalist population and that there has to be a solution to this that doesn't involve coercion. So by that stage, by February 1922, he's so completely estranged, his four years are up as SIGs, there's no chance of him being reappointed. So basically, four days after that, he is elected unopposed as the uh, Ulster Unionist MP for North Down. And in that sense, a month later, he becomes appointed as military advisor to the new northern government of James Craig. At that stage, the the northern government is still believes that there's a threat from the IRA. So the James Craig asks uh, Wilson to advise him on, on how to set up a suitable force that's to counter nationalist Irish nationalism. So uh, from that moment on, like Wilson is regarded as sort of public enemy number one of, of Irish nationalism. Now, on the day of the assassination, he's in Liverpool Street Station. Yes. What's he doing in Liverpool Street Station? Yeah, so he's um, he's basically a, a public figure in the UK after stepping down as, as SIGs. He's He's going around the country unveiling memorials to the war dead. And obviously, uh, this is only four years after the war. So some of the memorials are only being unveiled. And so he's invited to unveil a memorial to the uh, Great Eastern Railway Company workers who died in the First World War, approximately 1,200 of them. It's a huge memorial and it's still in Liverpool Street Station today. So, um, you know, if you're lots of people go through Liverpool Street Station on the way to Stansted. So, you know, it's upstairs in the Booking Hall. You can see it there. So he unveils this memorial. But more importantly, the day before um, he unveils this memorial, there's a notice in the local newspapers in, in London, the evening newspaper saying that he's going to do this. It's just a paragraph. Mm. And then suddenly, you know, this a newspaper's brought into a meeting of the IRA in London at that stage in Mooney's pub in Holborn and now they realise that they know where where Wilson's going to be the following day. So, I mean, for any murder to occur, you need motive, which they had, and you need opportunity. And here was an opportunity to kill him. Uh, one of the many ironies of the book is the fact that these three men come together yeah. very, very briefly and very, very tragically. Uh, one of them is Irish. Yeah. 
the victim. Yeah, yeah. Two of them are English. Yeah, two, the of, them are, two of them are English born. They are British uh, born. I, I say that they're British born Irish nationalists, whereas Wilson is a, is an Irish born British imperialist. And that is that I think is one of the fascinating aspects of this book is is the way Irish identity is, is seen in those days. These two guys are English born and bred. They're London born. Reginald Dunn is the is the son of a British Army officer, and his grandparents are his maternal grandparents are from Monaghan. Whereas Joe Sullivan is is second generation Irish. His parents are quote unquote an old Fenian family. Um, he's one of eleven children, and his parents are from Cork. And interestingly enough, after the killing occurs, the British Home Secretary Edward Short uh, stands up in the House of Commons and says "Well, I don't think there's any Irish involvement in this we checked out the O'Sullivan family and six out of the seven of them served in the First World War you know and uh, he couldn't believe that that these guys would turn around then after having served in the First World War and Joe O'Sullivan loses a leg at Ypres uh, that these guys would, would turn around and actually be fighting against uh, mm. Britain, where they they had fought for Britain in the First World War. Now you mentioned O'Sullivan um, ha- has a wooden leg. Uh, Reggie Dunn is was also injured, injured yeah. in the I- yeah. Irish Guards. Why would you send two disabled veterans to 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 kill somebody to kill somebody so notable? Well, that's the question that I asked myself before I started the book, and the answer to that is quite simply: they were available and they were willing, and um, they had been at the meeting in Mooney's Pub in Holborn. They had volunteered to assassinate uh, Wilson. They're there was supposed to have been a third man, a Dennis Kelleher, who was supposed to have turned up. And what's interesting about this is I was uh, the military service pension collection files confirmed that he was supposed to have turned up. He was supposed to have turned up with a car. He didn't, for reasons best known to himself. And um, the two boys, they assassinated Wilson and then they tried to run away. And, um, you know, it's a very... It's a very built-up part of London and it's very close from their point of view, uh, unfortunately, to a a police station. So um, they're quickly apprehended. Now, they don't attempt to kill him at Liverpool Street. They know know he's going to be there. Instead, they go to his home. So that suggests a certain amount of inside information, a certain amount of pre-planning, as it were. Well, the thing is... Or would is, people have known exactly where uh, Wilson lived? I think I think they wouldn't have. Um, I think they turned up to his house in the... Because they could have turned up to his house any time. Yeah, they, they could have. have to, they, they, well, they turned up to his house. I, I, I think what happened was that they simply turned up to his house not knowing whether he would come there or not. Now, Wilson was going to go straight to the House of Commons, but he decided that he, he changed his mind. He decided that he was going to go home and change his clothes uh, because he didn't want to turn up in the House of Commons in his field marshal uniform. So he might have taken a different turn and mm. they mightn't have turned up. And it's the same with, you know, when we talk about the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in, in Sarajevo. That the driver they took had a wrong turn. Him. Yeah, the yeah. driver took a wrong turn. So <laughs> yeah. this guy turns up uh, Wilson, he's home within about 40 minutes and, um, you know, unfortunately for him and unfortunately for them, you know. So, so they they shoot him. He's shot six times yeah. and he, he dies. And then they, now, no car to pick them up, yeah. no getaway car. Yeah. Uh, again, their history could have been entirely different had yeah. the getaway car been yeah. there. They attempt to escape on foot. A couple of policemen 
yeah. interpose themselves, are shot. But essentially, it is a uh, it is a group of civilians yeah. who corner them. Yeah, it's a mob, basically, oh, about 150 people. So they shoot two policemen. Uh, both of the policemen, fortunately, survive. They, they get onto a, a, a pony and trap as well. But eventually, you know, they run out of bullets and they run out of, they, you know, how can you run away from a mob with, with a wooden leg? They're hit by a truncheon in one case and by a milk bottle in the other. So eventually they're, they're apprehended and the, the police actually stop. Uh, they're the, safe the from being yeah, lynched. Yeah, for, for being lynched. They would have been lynched. Yeah. Uh, but And then they're taken to Gerrard Street Police Station and, and, and charged with, with the murder of, of Wilson. And are subsequently subsequently hanged. I mean, do they make any attempt to defend themselves? They do. Uh, they, well, they, they, they make a speech uh, from the dock, which is quickly stopped by the, the judge, but it's published in the um, Irish Independent newspaper two days after they're hanged on the 10th of August, 1922, in which they give their reasons for the assassination. What was the British political reaction when news gets to Westminster, for example, that, that Henry Wilson has been assassinated? Because, you know, security was much more lax yeah. at this stage. Downing Street had been well protected yeah. during the War of Independence. Right, yeah. All of that protection is gone. Yes, it's all gone. So there's absolutely profound shock and quite a lot of embarrassment as well. I mean, Wilson is, he's a, he's a famous figure throughout the world. This stage, he's part of the British delegation at the Treaty of Versailles. He's a household name in political circles, and as well as that, a lot of the politicians would know him personally. Asquith would have known him. Lloyd George would have known Austin's Chamberlain, and all the rest. And so, there's really profound shock at all of this. But there's also a degree of anger. You know, the British government obviously thought that when, once they had signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 19 December 1921, that they had been shot of the British, of the mm. Irish problem. So um, the assassination of Wilson on the streets of London is is the first assassination of a politician in Britain since the assassination of the Prime Minister in 1812. Spencer Percival. Yeah, so there's this, this profound shock about it. And obviously there's they're spoiling for vengeance as a result of this and they want to find somebody to blame. So this is where it, it becomes particularly hairy from an Irish point of view that they blame the anti-treaty rebels in the four courts, they feel that uh, the anti-treaty rebels, uh, which have been defying the provisional government at that stage, are the ones ultimately responsible for the killing of... And this is where you see the Sarajevo moment. Yes, so I think... So what I... Uh, the reason what I explain in the book is that if you look at the outbreak of the First World War, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand is, is killed and Austria delivers this ultimatum to Serbia and that starts the interlocking series of... Uh, alliances which brings the Europe to war within 37 days so basically if you, you use that analogy Britain gives the British government gives an ultimatum to the Irish government provisional Irish government stating if you do not deal with the anti-treaty rebels in the four courts who have been there since April we will do it for you so suddenly there's literally a, a figuratively a gun to the head of the mm. provisional government and you know it's no coincidence that the civil war breaks out six days later now, the, what was the advice of the officer commanding the British forces in Ireland at that time, Neville Macready? He wasn't keen. Macready is summons to London and he finds the cabinet, you know, spoiling for vengeance. And, you know, as particularly Churchill's talking about sending a Royal Navy flotilla to, to bomb the four courts. And he's talking about using the RAF and all the rest. And, and, and Macready says, steady on here, you know, like you just have to, you have to be rational about this. You have to think to yourself... If we do this, what we're going to do is we're going to unite the, the pro and anti-treaty factions and we're going to restart the War of Independence. And he had only 3,000 troops in, in Ireland. So 
he says like uh, uh, one of the one of the things I'm really glad I did was that I I called the British government off. I called the dogs off, so to speak. Um, and and he, he he would have felt that would have been a complete disaster had they gone back into Ireland. OK, now we come to the nutty question about who gave the order or was there even an order given? So who was d- directly responsible other than Reggie Dunn and, and Joe O'Sullivan for the for the assassination of uh, of Wilson? I've always assumed that it was a direct order from Collins and that the British cabinet got it completely wrong and wanted to blame the, the, the Four Courts Battalion. But uh, after, re- after reading the book, I'm, uh, I'm not so sure anymore. Well, actually, um, I'm pretty certain and I've been strengthened in this belief by new information I've got since this edition of the book was published, which will be in the paperback this out in May, that it was ordered by Collins by on the very strong balance of probability. I mean, there are really only, hmm. there, are, uh, there are four theories. I'll go to them very quickly. The first yeah. is that Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan uh, acted of their own initiative in killing Wilson. I don't believe that to be the case. When I go into the book, when I state that, that there had been orders to assassinate members of the British cabinet before, that had come from uh, Collins and had come from uh, the Sinn Féin. So they understood the import of killing a figure like Wilson and they wouldn't have done it, I, I believe, without um, orders from on high. There's but there was a kind of a fatwa on Wilson there was, which yeah. existed from from yeah. a number so of years one of the, one of the One of the theories is that, uh, another theory that has been ventured is that there was... Uh, plan to kill Wilson before the truce and that that, that order had never been uh, rescinded. Now, I, I've dealt with that very quickly in the book. Basically, the Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan say the reason why they killed uh, Wilson is because of Wilson's involvement with the Northern Government, or as they call it, the Orange Terror. They hold him responsible for the pogroms in the North. So this could only have happened uh, after um, Wilson becomes an MP. So I mean, they, it's there in black and white why they killed him. They killed him because they held him responsible mm. for the the actions of the B specials and the actions of, of the British state forces. So, uh, to me, obviously, what they're stating here is that this happened after the truce. The reasons why he was killed is for his actions after the truce, mm. as opposed to before. And then we we can rule out the anti-treaty side. They said if they had done it, they would have admitted to it, but they didn't do it. Okay, so what? what it, Don and O'Sullivan, do we know? what their attitude was towards the treaty, because obviously that could be crucial when it comes to they, figuring they were out, support, did the yeah. order come from the four courts, did the order come from yeah, Collins? Well, they, were trying to, they were trying to hold the IRA and London together, which had split in the same way that uh, they had split in Ireland. Donald O'Sullivan were um, basically Collins loyalists, um, so they would have tried to keep the IRA together by adopting a, a neutral position, but they certainly weren't anti-treaty. They had offered their services to Collins at an earlier stage in the National Army. So I I believe that they were pro-treaty, but at the same time they were trying their best. And this is one of the reasons why there was this meeting in Holborn was to try and and, and come to a common position in relation to to the treaty. But there was an awful lot of people in the IRA in London who were very, very much anti-treaty. Certainly Reggie Dunn and Joe Sullivan weren't. Mm. weren't. But the interesting thing is, Miles, is that the killing of Wilson had nothing to do with the treaty. It had everything to do with the North. Yeah. Not not the treaty, yeah. Mm. Um, now, I, I, I like the notion of the Sarajevo moment. Yeah. It's a very interesting yeah. way of, of, of yeah. framing all of this. But maybe I could put it to you that, yes, it was. There's no doubt about yeah. it. It was the proximate cause yeah. of the Civil War. Yeah. It set in chain yeah. a sequence of yeah. events that led to the, the bombardment of the Four Courts. 
But equally, you could say if that hadn't sparked off the civil war, something else would. Well, I deal with that in the book. Um, yes, uh, what I am what I am stating in my book is that the civil war, as it happened, wouldn't have happened without the the Wilson shooting. So, if you look at the the sequence of events from the twenty second of June to the twenty eighth, the sequence of events which ends with the provisional government borrowing British field guns is a direct result. It's not the only reason, but it's a direct result of the assassination of Wilson. Now, the question is, would the Civil War have happened in any case? And The question uh, also is, would the First World War have happened in well, any case, and, even and, if France heard it? Yes, and again, I, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've addressed that subject. Yeah. I, I don't believe the First World War would have happened in any case, but for the France Ferdinand shooting. There's a stronger argument to be made that the Civil War would have happened in any case. But the unfortunate timing of this is this is six days after the general election of the 16th of June. where And uh, by the 22nd of June, De Valera is still holding out some hope that, mm. that, that there'll be a, a government that's put together that will include yeah. him in it. So you don't know what is going to happen. And the other thing is people say, well, the Civil War was inevitable. And I said, Really? I mean, where was the preparation that was being put in by the anti-treaty side? They had done no preparation. They had occupied the forecourts, but they had done no preparations at all for a civil war. And neither actually really had the provisional government. So I would caution against this idea that the civil war was inevitable. Some people say it was, some people say it wouldn't be, but I don't think it was ever uh, inevitable. Well, it's something we can discuss and something we can debate until the cows come yeah. home. But the fact is, it well, did happen and this yeah, is why it happened. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in that sense, I mean, it wasn't it was the cause. I mean, the Wilson shooting was not the cause yeah. of the Civil War, but it was the... It, it was, was the, the proximate yeah, cause. Yeah, it, was yeah, the, yeah, it was the spark, yeah. if you like. Anyway, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's wonderfully written. It's called Great Hatred, The Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson MP, published by Faber and Faber. The author is my guest, Rona McGreevy. Rona, thanks for joining us on The History Show. Thank you for having me, Miles. After the break, we look at one of history's most tenacious conspiracy theories and, specifically, the man who caused a sensation in 19th century aflone when he visited the town and proclaimed, The Earth is flat. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. On a late April evening in 1851, Miss Gray's Hotel in Athlone hosted an extraordinary gathering. For those in attendance, the wealthier strata of local society, it was to be an evening of education and perhaps enlightenment. They'd gathered to hear a man, a prophet of sorts, who would share with them the hitherto hidden secrets of the cosmos. This speaker, who travelled under the name Parallax, had arrived to proclaim the incredible truth to the people of Athlone. The earth was flat. I'm joined by historian Dr. Ian Kennelly, who has recently studied this event. I shouldn't laugh, but uh, I did anyway. Um, Tell us a little bit about this mysterious visitor, this man who called himself Parallax. Yeah, well, Parallax, uh, to give him his earthly name, was born uh, Samuel Robotham. He was born in England, Stockport, around 1816. Now, details of his early life aren't entirely clear, but he emerges into the public consciousness around the 1830s when he's managing a, a commune, uh, a utopian socialist commune in uh, the Cambridgeshire Fens, again in the east of England. Now, like most of those utopian escapades, it falls apart. So he's looking for something to do. He's still only in his 20s at this stage. So he takes on a persona, Dr. Burley, uh, Dr. Burley, PhD, and as part of 
Dr. Burley PhDs. Did he earn the PhD or did he award it to himself? I think he may have awarded it. Imagine <laughs> it. But he, um, his specialism was the pursuit of immortality. He published, apparently uncovered some of these secrets uh, quite quickly, and he published under another pseudonym, Tryon, uh, pamphlets advising people how to, if they couldn't achieve immortality, that they could at least expand their lifespan. I, by. I like the pseudonym, Try. Uh, yeah, yeah, obviously. Expand by thousands of years. So that was the kind of character he was. Now, that seems to have earned him a good deal of money, but maybe not enough to give him the kind of lifestyle he wanted. So some stage in the late 1840s, he cast around for new ideas and he seems to have come upon this new character, Parallax. And Parallax's goal was to explain to the people of Ireland, Britain, elsewhere who would ever listen that the world was not a globe. It was indeed flat. Straight out of Terry Pratchett. Uh, he arrives in Ireland to tell audience that the, uh, the, 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 the world is flat. Did he actually believe that or was it just another con? It's it's probably a con now. I can't say for certain. Now there he has there's a hist- an English historian, Christine Garwood, looked at figures such as uh, Robot and Parallax, and these guys who, and they were mostly men who pushed forward the idea of a flat earth. And uh, she reckons it was probably just another con that he never really truly believed it, and it was something that he picked upon. And I think she's probably accurate in that. By his own telling, of course, it was different. He said that he came across this shattering or chattering belief through experimentation and through a close reading of the Bible. And he combined those two uh, strands of research into this, mm. uncovered this truth that he was determined to tell people. So he was on a mission. Um, now, he was, he was a creationist. He was, uh, you know, believed the Bible, Earth created in six days. It was around 6,000 years old mm. at, at this stage. But this is the 1850s. This is the early 1850s. This is pre-Darwin. But I, I would have thought even at that stage, there must have been uh, quite a lot of scientific evidence that the Earth was considerably more than 6,000 years old. Yeah, and like the, the fact that the Earth was a globe you know, back in... The Hellenistic period, uh, philosopher Aristosthenes had, you know, very conclu- very close to measuring the Earth's circumference. Uh, Aristotle, Pythagoras, many uh, philosophers and scientists had established that the Earth was a globe. It wasn't a controversial fact, but Parallax argued that they and the whole scientific establishment were caught in a kind of a trap and that they were blinded by their own uh, arrogance and they were all wrong and he was right and that was uh, part of his goal and his mission was to uncover the 2,000 plus years of fallacy and tell people the real truth and earn substantial profits while doing so. Why did he pick Athlone? I mean, I know he did operate in Dublin as well, but not as successfully as in Athlone. Why were the people of Athlone so open to the notion that the earth was flat? Uh, I suppose he may have chosen for the simple reason that... uh, it's the Irish Midlands, it's flat. He might have felt that there was a, <laughs> the audience was likely to be uh, amenable to his argument because he's a, he had originally come up or claimed to come up with this idea in the Cambridgeshire Fens, which is a, a marshy, flat area. So I think that may have been why he chose that loan. Now, he, it's interesting when you follow him, I've looked at a lot, accounts of a lot of his lectures. He tended to do better in, in small cities and towns rather than metropolises as such. So he came to that loan. By this stage, this is early in his career, just a quick note, he, this is 1851, he'd started giving these public lectures about 1849, and the first couple of lectures didn't go well. In one lecture, he was speaking, and somebody in the audience was challenging his beliefs, and he literally ran out the door 
halfway through the lecture. But by the time he got to Athlone, he was really polished, really suave. He was well able to uh, take any argument and counter it. And that became a secret of his success. It wasn't so much in Athlone that people, some people clearly took on board his message or at least liked the, had liked the idea. But there are accounts to say that many local uh, mathematicians and scientists of various sorts challenged him. But the local newspapers took real glee in the fact that uh, Parallax was able to take these people on and at least battle them to a, a confusing draw if he couldn't actually defeat them. And he basically uses the first meeting and he parlays that into a series of other meetings yeah, in Athlone. That's it. The first one is so controversial, gets a huge audience that the press are all over it. He stays in the region. There's a huge clamour. Please, Parallax, give us more lectures. Two weeks later, elsewhere in the town, in the courthouse, he comes back, gives another couple of lectures and there's a huge furore again. And that leads to more. And that's the pattern he takes. What he does in that loan when he goes back to Britain, that's the pattern. He'll go around to town, to town, to town, stay there for a couple of weeks. The first lectures create a controversy. That creates a virtuous circle of more controversy. And it's more funds, more more appearances for, for Parallax. Must have been a, a, a very vibrant flat earth society in Athlone after he left. Um, but I think we can, I mean, we can see the appeal of somebody like this particularly nowadays with the conspiracy theorists, mm. with the challenging of so-called scientific elites, which is basically challenging uh, pretty much incontrovertible scientific evidence. Yeah, well, th- let's look at what he told people. When he arrived in Athlone, his goal, he told them the earth was a flat, but he would explain it as such that what we would consider the North Pole sits at the uh, centre of this flat disk. What we consider Antarctica is a huge wall of ice that sits around the edge of this circular plane. Uh, so that effectively is the Earth. The Earth effectively makes up the entire visible universe. Uh, the sun is a few hundred kilometres, well, he would have said miles, obviously, a few hundred miles, maybe a thousand miles at most above the Earth. And the stars are a few hundred miles beyond that. Beneath this disk is uh, a fathomless deep sea, of what I'm not sure, but you know, infinitely deep sea, and that and that was the entire universe. The Earth was God's special creation, and there was no other planets. He died in 1884. Did he have a legacy, or was his uh, were his theories completely? Did they just disappear completely? No, he had a long, a long tail, long legacy. During his career as as, as uh, Dr. Burley and as Parallax and Tryon, he developed a quite a few disciples and he was quite very wealthy by 1884, the 1870s. Now, one of those um, disciples, if you'd call him that, was a guy called John Hampton. Uh, he was very litigious as well and he sued a lot of scientists, Alfred uh, Russell Wallace and so on, who challenged uh, Parallax's ideas. And there was then a guy called Carpenter who travelled to the United States, Baltimore in 1879. He spread flat earth ideology to the United States uh, but probably the most influential during this period was Lady uh, Elizabeth Blunt and she uh, funded a journal not very you know not very catchy title but the Earth Not a Globe Review Uh, and apparently this had uh, subscribers in Ireland in Britain the United States South Africa Australia New Zealand literally at the other side of the globe uh, and it spread that uh, way of thinking throughout the planet Now, the society seems to have faded away in the early 20th century, but the books and the publications and the the pamphlets that it produced remained out there in libraries and archives around the the world. And a guy, an English guy called Samuel Shenton, found uh, Parallax's book, The Earth's Not a Globe, and he thought, wow, this is inspirational. This is what I've been looking for. And he uh, created the Flat Earth, or I think it's 
proper title is the Flat Earth, International Flat Earth Research Society in the 1950s. And that gave a new impetus. You know, there's, there's, back then there was never more than thousands of people, but it kept the idea alive until modern times. And of course now, social media and so on, the prevalence of conspiracy theories, it's a kind of a gateway. If you go in through this gate, you know, you're into an alternate reality and who knows what you'll find. But for example, the Great Wall of Ice that surrounds the, the Earth disk, uh, one of the prevalent conspiracy theories at the moment is that NASA... NASA's goal is not to uh, explore the cosmos or to develop space-faring uh, technologies. It's actually to post guards around this wall of ice to prevent people from uh, finding out the truth of the Earth's <laughs> flatness. I have to say I prefer the theory that the Earth is a disk which is uh, being uh, on the back of uh, four elephants yeah. who are in turn on the back of a, of a, of a giant turtle. That's, that's my kind of flat earth theory. Ian, thanks very much indeed for no joining problem. us on the History Show this evening to talk about Samuel Robotham or Parallax and the history of flat earth conspiracies. <laughs> That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.